911, what's the nature of your emergency? Good morning, police, fire, military, and families. And to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast, good morning. My name is Ashley Bolton. I am your host. And today I am joined with Lexi Cassidy. We're going to get into who she is, but I just want to preface this interview by saying that today's guest is one that has such an inspiring story. I'm hoping to pretty much just hand over the mic to her today because this is an episode that I know we'll all be able to look back on and to be able to use as reference if ever we're feeling like shit and maybe we want some inspiration because the story that Lexi has to share is one of true resilience. And it is one that I want to make sure that we can all share and hear and rehear when we need to as far and wide as we can. So without further ado, Lexi, thank you so much for joining us this morning all the way from Texas. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So Lexi, I want to make this incredibly easy. And I thought that we can start out just by kind of having you review a little bit of your childhood and how that led to you getting into an abusive relationship. Okay. Um, I don't, I kind of have a lot of blocked memories from my childhood. So I'll, I'll see what I can, <laughs> what I can remember. Um, so my dad was in the Navy. I was born on the Navy base in Charleston. And um my parents had a really rocky marriage. Um, and so my parents divorced when I was eight um, and my dad retired from the Navy. Um, and then we moved to Wisconsin from South, South Carolina um, to live with my grandparents, with my dad. So my brother, sister, my dad and I went to live with our grandparents in Wisconsin um, while my dad went to nursing school. Um, and so I, I basically was just raised by my dad and saw my mom on um, holidays and in the summers. Um, and we kind of, um, I had a good child. Dad loved me and did the best that he could, um, but we weren't really an emotional family or one that talked about feelings or anything like that. So I never dealt with uh, my parents' divorce. And so, I just remember having a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety when I was um, a kid, starting at 11, probably earlier, I just can't remember, but I remember um, feeling that I wanted to commit suicide at a very young age. And so I started, um, I, I didn't know how to process the anger that I was feeling over the divorce um, and over not knowing what to do with negative emotions. Um, and my family, um, I won't, tell their stories because they're not mine to tell, but there's a lot of um, alcoholism in my family. Um, and there was abuse going farther back that I, um, and grandparents and great grandparents. Um, and so what I was taught was that if you have negative emotions, um, you use alcohol or drugs, or um, you just make those go away the best that you can. And so we, there was a very negative stigma in my family over um, therapists or social workers or any, getting anybody else involved inside the family. Um, and there was not abuse happening in my childhood. My father never hit me. Um, 
or anything like that. It was before my time that the abuse happened. But it definitely affected how my dad raised us and um, affected his ability to show us how to deal with the negative things happening. Um, so the first time that I remember feeling so angry that I didn't understand um, how to cope, I was probably 11 and I just dug my, my fingernails into my arms as hard as I could until I felt blood. And that rush, that um, letting go of emotion was the first time that I really felt high and I loved it. And so I started cutting. Um, and then a year later after that, um, I cut I cut my arms pretty um, often after that. And it, it allowed me to get my, my bad emotions out. And so at 12, um, I was invited to a party and found pot and that was better than cutting um, because nobody could really notice it. And people had started noticing the cuts of my arms and it, I didn't want their attention. Um, I just wanted to, I was playing with killing myself and I, I didn't exactly know how to do it. Um, and so that depression um, had just kind of got a hold of me. And then I found alcohol and I found marijuana and those things made me feel so good and, and accepted. So the, the kids who were doing drugs at school were very accepting. Um, and I was very awkward and never fit in in any group until I found them. Um, and so at 12, I started doing that. And then at 16, um, we went to live with my mother for a year. Uh, my dad wanted us to get to know her. And she um, had not been a mother since I was eight years old. And so she didn't know what to do with three teenagers. So um, we went to live with her in Chicago uh, from Wisconsin. And I had my junior year in Chicago. Um, and I was very resentful because I didn't want to be taken away from my friends. And um, I had kind of just been on this out of control um, path. Um, and my dad uh, was working nights as a nurse um, and just trying to take care of us by himself. So he really had no idea what I was going through. Um, and he was doing his best to work nights and have three teenagers as well. So, um, at 16, I got a boyfriend that was older at my, my mom's house. He was 19 and he introduced me to hard drugs. So, um, I started using cocaine and ecstasy and, um, we were snorting heroin. We were doing everything that you could think of except injection. I never got to that level, <laughs> but had I, I probably um, would have loved it. So I'm kind of glad he didn't introduce me to that, but um, I was just using all the drugs that I could and, and trying to feel good whenever I could. And it kind of, it helped me to forget about my depression. Um, it helped me have a group of people that accepted me and just, we just loved to party and that's what we did. Um, and so I didn't want to be told what to do or controlled by anyone. So I, I ended up running away, living with that boyfriend um, at 16. And um, there was really nobody that could tell me what to do. So uh, I didn't go back to my parents at that point. Um, and 
probably a year into that relationship, when I was 17, I met another guy and I went back to Wisconsin and um, ended up, we got an apartment together and I was still using this whole time. Um, and that man, um, I had been with him about six months and we got into our first argument as a couple and he took my head and bashed with both of his hands and bashed my forehead into a doorknob and threw me down a flight of stairs. And that was the first time I'd ever been hit or abused like that. Um, and so that was very shocking. And then that ended up to be, I was with him from 17 until 20. Um, and I was basically just beat up every day severely and um, where I, I probably should have been in the hospital a few times, but he didn't want to get in trouble. So I, he just, um, like I would have a concussion and he just wouldn't let me fall asleep so that I didn't die or I would have giant black eyes. Um, he repeatedly beat me in the face over and over again and, and then wouldn't let me leave the house until it healed. And um, it was just a really, really abusive relationship. So that was my whole childhood up till 20 years old. Thank you. That, that's more, um, I did a lot of research on Lexi and I've listened to several of her interviews and that's why I know this to be an incredibly inspiring story, but you've shared more in, in more detail and I definitely appreciate that. And from the time that you're 20 in an abusive relationship, you had made mention of the fact that you have siblings, a brother in particular. So what happened with your brother that led to what I would say is probably like a, a second adult transition in your life apart from deciding to take off when you're 16 years old? Yeah, so my brother saved my life um, and just by being himself. So during this um, relationship, I had no um, communication with my family. This um, monster, he doesn't even deserve a name. He um, wouldn't allow me to communicate with my parents or my brother and sister. So I had lost touch with everybody. Um, I didn't have any friends left. Um, the only person that could communicate with me um, was my grandmother and she always had my address and was sending letters to me all the time. And like, I kind of see those as like, she shot these light arrows into my darkness and they would just have these little Bible verses on them and these little cards that would say, I love you and I'm praying for you. And I would kind of read them and throw them away. But now I remember that they like did something in my heart and they're preparing me for escape. Um, I, I didn't know that at the time, but also um, books were preparing me. So my escape was always in books. Um, so the monster would drop me off at the library sometimes and just leave me there. And I couldn't leave the chair that he put me in um, and and I actually thought that he could like tell if I left the chair and I couldn't lie to him. So I would just get a book and sit down at this chair and wait for him for hours to come back and get me. And so there are a lot of books that also prepared me for escape. So he didn't know that he was giving me um, kind of field manuals for, for leaving by letting, allowing me to be in the library for hours. Um, so Eventually, my uh, I found out that my brother was going to Marine Corps boot camp. My brother is um, 18 months younger than me, 
and I had missed his high school graduation, the monster wouldn't let me go. And when I found out that he was graduating from boot camp, I something in me just said, you need to be there. Like this is important and whatever you have to do, get to California. And I hadn't asked the monster for any favors or to be able to see anyone ever. Um, and so if we had um, marijuana, I could keep him kind of whelmed. So he would lose his temper. And it, if he could smoke a joint, he, he could kind of get it under control sometimes. So I had never been a person that prayed or um, believed in God or anything, but I had this plan and I said, God, if, if you will just allow us to get enough marijuana for me to keep him high until that graduation, then um, that would help me. And we had been a dry county at that time, like we hadn't been able to find any marijuana. And I was, um, <laughs> for all you young kids that have it good now, you could get a felony and go to prison for life for <laughs> as much marijuana as I was praying for. So <laughs> I could have been in a lot of trouble. Um, and suddenly a dealer called us and, and we had a pound of pot. And so um, I could just keep him as high as I wanted. And so kind of helped to keep his temper under control. And um, so I got him really, really stoned. And then I asked him, hey, I would love to go to California to see my brother graduate. Um, do you think that I could go? And he said, yes. And that was my first miracle because <laughs> there's no way that he would allow me out of his sight. Um, and so I actually got this ticket to California and I went to see my brother graduate Marine Corps boot camp. And that was the proudest I've ever been of anyone in my life. And it was the first time that I had thought about someone other than myself. And that was the first time since 9-11 that I had thought about my country, um, about things that are going on outside of our borders. It really opened and expanded my my world. It had just been me and this monster for, for so long. And so I was probably about not even 100 pounds and I was an addict and I was abused, but I, I had a really good um, mask and I hid it really well, none of my family would have guessed that anything was wrong when I went and saw them. Um, and I'm, I look happy in all the pictures, like you would never be able to tell what I had been going through. And my family really didn't know. Um, and so I saw my brother graduate and then I went back to the monster and I suddenly felt brave. And I, I told him, I had my little suitcase still packed and I told him, if you ever hit me again, I'm leaving you. I wasn't exactly thinking of not being with him, I was thinking of just putting my foot down and making him act better, <laughs> getting him help, because I really was in love and I wasn't, I couldn't live without him. Or the things that he had told me, um, I didn't imagine that I, I could have a different life or that I deserved a different mm -hmm. life. Um, I just knew that I didn't want to be hit anymore. And the next morning I woke up and he said, I know you cheated on me when you were in California. And he punched me in the face and punched me out of bed. And I ran to the door and grabbed my little suitcase and he tried to run after me and close the door behind me. And I got out and I was just running down the road and he was driving behind me, chasing me. And I had met um, this lady um, just randomly and she had 
told me where she lived and it happened to be just a block away from our apartment. And so she had told me um, in another miracle, a, a time that he just happened to not be there. Um, she said, come to my house anytime and, and I will help you if you need it. Cause she saw that um, I had all these bruises and I didn't have to tell her that something was wrong. She just acted. And that was a really important piece. Um, people that are willing to say something when they see that everything is not all right with this, this woman, even though she can't tell me, this woman gave me her address and said, come anytime. She knew that something was wrong. Um, and so I just ran to her house and pounded on the door and she let me in and she allowed me to call my dad. And I hadn't talked to my dad since I was 16. And I just said, um, Daddy, I'm not, I'm not happy here. Can I come and, and stay with you? And he had um, already been told that I was being abused and my dad had actually driven from Missouri all night um, and tried to save me and picked me up at my job because somebody called and told him what was happening to me. Um, and I, I yelled at him and told him to go home, that nothing was wrong, that I didn't want him. Um, and just to leave, and I saw tears in my dad's eyes, and um, he couldn't make me come with him, so he had to drive back to Missouri, um, and that had been right before my brother's boot camp graduation, and so he tried to be um, my, my white knight and save me, but I sent him away, and so I called him now, and I, I still didn't admit that I was being beaten up every day, um, but I just said, hey, dad, I'm not happy. It's not working out with me and the monster. Um, can I come stay with you? And he said, yes, I'll send you a bus ticket right now. Um, and I said, well, it's almost Christmas. I don't want to leave yet. Can you make it to, for after Christmas? And then I will come. And I think I had a month to go before Christmas. And for some reason, I, I, I didn't want to leave right then. I just said, let me come let me spend Christmas with him. It's it's rude to leave at Christmas time. <laughs> so I gave myself more excuses to stay. And um, my dad did send the bus ticket. I can't remember. He probably sent it to the lady's house or I wouldn't have got it. Um, but the, the monster was outside waiting and he wouldn't come into this lady's house. Like he wasn't so brave when other people were around. Um, and so I went back out to him and he said, oh, Lexi, just come have lunch with me and everything's going to be okay now. I won't do it again. I promise. I love you. And so the, the woman tried to get me to stay with her and I wouldn't. Um, I said, it, it's going to be okay. Let me just go back and talk to him. And so I just kind of hatched this scheme. And since I had already been to California with his permission and I came back, I think it gave him a little more trust that I really wasn't going to leave him um, because he would um, not only beat me, but he would tell me things like, you are an idiot. Like, I wish that I had a woman that I could actually have an intelligent conversation with. You're so stupid. You'll never become anything. You're not good for anything but sex. And you're not even that good at that. No man is ever going to want you. But me, like, you're lucky that I want you. Um, and I really believed those things. <laughs> believe that it wasn't worth anything but the thing that drove me is that my brother was going to Iraq and I needed to get to him I couldn't let him go through that alone 
even if I was worthless, my brother was worth getting out of there. And so, um, I prayed again, please don't let us go dry. I need marijuana for the next month because I need to keep his temper under control. Now I was still using this whole time. So my plans were not really great plans. They weren't, um, <laughs> they weren't that intelligent. <laughs> um, I was- I mean, I was not a lot of people not. pray to God for weed. I just have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I believe that. I believe in him and I think that um, he gives you what you need, the tools at the time. And if you don't believe in him, um, however it happens, sometimes you just get the, the tools that you need for the story that you're in. And we're just all doing our best out here. So, <laughs> so um, I got another pound of weed and um, I just kept him so high, so, so high that he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and so um, I was still beaten several times, like just because he had marijuana didn't mean that he was suddenly nice, but um, it allowed me to plan. And so I had already been beaten up so much that it didn't really affect me. I didn't, um, it didn't matter like how, how often I was hit. Um, I just had hope because I had this plan in place. And so uh, I was planning to leave right after Christmas and I, I spent Christmas with him that month went by and the day came that my bus ticket was um, ready and I had told him, hey, I just want to go visit my dad. I hadn't seen I haven't seen him for a long time. I'm going to go for a week and then I'll be back. And he believed me but this time I wasn't coming back. And so I could only pack this little bag because it had to look like I was coming back. And so I had to leave all my things. I had to leave my pet rat. His name was Ginsburg. Um, and that sounds dumb, but that rat was my only saving grace. Like I, it was the only living thing that I had. Um, and he was my best friend <laughs> was this little rat. Um, I had to leave my rat there. I tried to take him on the bus, but the bus driver saw him. <laughs> he said, you can't have a rat on the bus. <laughs> So I had to leave him with the monster and um, he was driving me to the bus stop and it was snowing. We're in Wisconsin in the middle of winter. And he said, the voices in my, he was schizophrenic. I haven't mentioned that before, but, um, and that's why I gave him a lot of, um, I guess, exceptions um, because I knew that he was mentally ill and I, I thought that um, I could maybe help him um, to get better if he would go to the doctor or get on medication um, and so I stayed a lot longer because I knew that that he had a mental illness and it wasn't all completely his fault um, but he told me that the voices in his head were telling him to drive us into a wall and kill me because um, he didn't want to let me go. And if he couldn't have me, then nobody could. And um, he said, I don't know why, but I'm not going to kill us. And I said, okay, well, thank you for that. I'm just, I said, I'm just going to Missouri for a week and I'll be back. I promise nobody else is going to have me. And so I told him what he needed to hear, uh, but I knew that I wasn't coming back. And I had, um, we got to the bus stop and I, froze and I've never felt such fear as I felt in that moment. 
um, that my whole body turned into cement. I was like a statue and I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of the car. And um, I just said this little prayer in my head, God, if you want me to get on that bus, you have to take away this fear. And I felt this light come into my brain and pour down my whole body until it reached my toes and I was warm and I could move again. And I got out of the car and hugged him goodbye and got on the bus. And I had my little Walkman and I had a Billy Holiday CD and I had a Wu-Tang CD. And I listened to those and those are still, um, I call those my freedom music. <laughs> Billy and Wu-Tang. <laughs> Um, and then I got to Missouri, um, and it was a long process from there, but I was free, and I didn't go back to him. So. That that takes so, so much bravery, and I love how you keep, you keep gently sprinkling the element of religion um, into your story, and as we continue forward, we're going to see how it's almost tenfold, and I know somebody else that had interviewed you had made mention of the fact that there's so many divine interventions within your story, and, you know, starting from the the drop-offs at the library and then being forced to sit in a chair with a fear of getting up and then this monster having known that you got up from your chair, but that leaving you with the space to be able to sit and to keep your head down in these books and why why prayer and why religion ends up being so important, especially as you entered into a career um, in the military. And good morning to everybody. I agree that God provides what is needed when needed. The power of prayer is amazing. Prayer and music works so much wonders. Absolutely. Good morning, everybody. So can you talk to us, Lexi, about the the transition then after you finally make your escape? You're listening to your freedom music. You know, you have your Walkman and how that got you into even even joining the military. Yeah. Um, so at this time, uh, I was staying with my dad and the monster was calling me every day because he figured out that I wasn't coming back. Um, and so I was just crying and I was going through so much that I actually wanted to go back. Um, he was telling me that I was basically murdering him from leaving and all kinds of things. And so I was still answering his calls every day. We didn't have cell phones yet. So I think he was calling my dad's landline and just kept barraging me with this. He still had control over my mind. Um, and so I did go back for my rat, by the way. I got my, my Ginsburg back. <laughs> my uncle drove me to, to um, get my rat and I, I saved him too. So um, my dad had a live-in girlfriend at the time and she did not appreciate me being there and I don't blame her because I was a mess. Um, and so I was, um, I had no way to get drugs anymore. So I was clean, not by my own, um, not from wanting to be clean, just from the circumstances. So I was um, trying to get clean without anybody noticing that I was getting clean mm -hmm. and um, also act normal because I still told my dad that nothing ever happened between the guy and me that I just left him. Um, and I think people often know, we they know something is going on. They know that you're not right, but they don't, understand how to talk to you about it and so we just acted normal like everything um, was fine and so I started looking for a job and um, I ended up 
moving out of my dad's house to um, this little apartment. Um, I met, I got a job at this little pizza place um, in, I was in Springfield, Missouri now. And um, one of the guys that worked there, he was leaving for the summer. So I think um, it was summertime now. And um, he wanted to rent out his apartment while he was gone. And so I told him I need a place to live. Um, so I started renting his little apartment. And um, I think I've told the story on other podcasts, but um, the little pizza place that I walked into, um, they hired me and I had no, um, I was so scared of everything that I couldn't even answer the phone in a voice loud enough for anyone to understand me. So they told me, you're going to have to talk louder or we're going to have to fire you. Like people can't understand when they're calling in to put their pizza orders in. And they had to actually have me stop answering the phones because I just couldn't, there was no voice inside of me. Um, and so when I got back from boot camp, I, or when I when I went to visit my dad after boot camp, um, I went into that pizza place and screamed at them, "Hey, it's me, and I'm back!" And I had found my voice, and they couldn't believe who I had become, <laughs> what the military did for me. Um, but that was later on. Um, so I was working at this pizza place, and I worked at McDonald's. I had two jobs, and McDonald's was so horrible that. One day I just didn't go back. <laughs> I would rather be, have no money than work here. Um, and so I was just trying to forge a little life for myself. And um, lo and behold, I met another abusive man in Missouri. <laughs> Dated him for a few weeks. And then I was like, this is bullshit. I'm not doing this again. Um, so um, I, at this point, my brother was going to, Iraq for his first tour. Um, he had been through SOI, um, the infantry school for the Marine Corps. And I found out that he was going to Chicago to see my mom um, before he went to Iraq. So I went to visit him in Chicago and spent um, his leave with him. And then um, while I was there, um, he had to go back to Pendleton um, to get ready to deploy. And I thought, I can't let my brother go to Iraq um, and be alone during this time. So I just went to the recruiters and I said, I want to um, be stationed with my brother. I went to the Marine Corps recruiter and I told them that my brother is going to Iraq and I want to be with him. So put me in the Marine Corps. And they said, women can't be in the infantry. Uh, we can't put you with your brother, but we can give you honor, courage and commitment. He said, that's not going to work for me. I need to be with my brother. So um, the Navy overheard us talking and they said, well, we can put you with your brother. You can be a corpsman. You can be um, a chaplain's assistant. You can be a dental tech. Um, just come sign up with us and we'll make sure you're stationed with your brother. And I believe them. <laughs> so I joined the Navy. Um, and my dad had been in the Navy. So that was um, already in my brain, like the Navy so cool. And um, so I joined and they said, um, I think that was two weeks before my um, 21st birthday. And so I spent that July 4th in Chicago. And then my recruiter said, you're going to boot camp on July 7th. And that was my 21st birthday. And I did. So two weeks after I was in boot camp. 
Were you still going through withdrawals and still trying to heal yourself in silence while you entered? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I had started smoking pot again. Um, so I was having horrible anxiety, horrible, just pushing all that stuff down that wanted to start coming up. And I think um, I was pretty numb. So I wasn't really having any uh, post-traumatic stress from the abusive relationship. I was just um, staying stoned. Um, after I moved out of my dad's house, I immediately started smoking pot again and drinking. I didn't go back to hard drugs, um, mostly because I couldn't find them in my new life. I didn't have any connections in Missouri. Um, and so it was kind of forced, but I'm grateful for that. Um, and then I talked to the recruiter. I, I don't remember what he did to help me get in because I was, I definitely had marijuana in my system. Um, but I, he helped me just pass through everything. And then um, he told me, don't tell the Navy about your history. Um, don't, don't talk about that. We're just going to get you in. And he did. Um, but that's definitely something that I would like, I hope is changed in the, the military because when you're coming into the military already with trauma, um, it just compounds itself when you, you don't know what you're about to face. So I think that I would like to see recruiters, um, and I don't know, I can't say that all recruiters are doing this. I would like to have seen my recruiter tell me, hey, I would like you to get some therapy for what you've gone through and then come back and join us instead of just pushing me through and telling me not to say anything because that just kind of um, reiterated what I was already told my whole life that you just don't talk about it. You just find a way to deal with it. Um, and so um, what I would go through later in the military, um, um, that really wasn't helpful just to put me in. But I'm glad that he did get me in because I, I was able to be stationed with my brother and be there when he got back from his tour. So that was what was important to me and, and that happened. Yeah, so you you enter boot camp, you're going through detox on your own. Nobody knows that you're in this situation. You were in an abusive relationship and I have never heard anybody discuss military boot camp especially the the construct of the foods and you know how you're sleeping and your comfortable bed and just having it be this pleasant experience that it was for you can you talk about why that was oh my god i loved boot camp i felt so i hadn't felt safe in a long time and i was safe there and i had people who cared about me and were trying to help me be better and they were telling me that i could do all these things that uh, i had been told i was stupid and I was worthless and now I was being told you're part of something important you you can um, take on these challenges and you can overcome them and I had never um, exercised in my life I skated through gym class and um, barely graduated high school um, I hadn't really achieved anything in my life and I was getting like a hundred percent on the tests in boot camp and I was um, I had to quit smoking when I joined boot camp. So I was smoking Marlboro Reds, probably two packs a day when I joined and they didn't let you smoke in boot camp. So that was the worst thing that happened to me. Um, and they cut off all your hair and, <laughs> and I got the, the BCGs. So I was looking pretty atrocious there, but um, I loved it. I loved having the other um, people around me and being able to encourage people like there was girls that were crying when we had to do push-ups, And I was just thinking, 
yeah, they're yelling at us, but the things they're telling us to do are not impossible and nobody's gonna hit me if I, like the things are making sense and nothing had made sense in my life in a long time. Like I just need to do what they say and then um, I don't get yelled at anymore. And before I can do everything that the monster told me exactly in the order that he told me, but I would still get hit. And so um, things made sense in boot camp. And I actually cried when I left because I loved it. I didn't want to go. So <laughs> I love that. Awesome. Courageous gal to recognize her worth 100%. So you, you go through boot camp and what job did you choose? I was an RP, a religious program specialist. Um, and I chose that because I could go Greenside and be with my brother. And Greenside is the Navy that is stationed with the Marines. Um, and actually, my recruiter messed with magic because there was the, the rate for RP was closed to females at the time that I joined. Um, they needed males so that they could deploy with the Marines um, and be in combat with them. Um, they needed um, RPs to go to the chap, go with the chaplains to war with the Marines. So it was closed and they found out um, somehow that I had gotten this um, this job and I was almost graduating boot camp and they called me to the chaplains um, to the chapel and they said so your rate is close to females we're going to have to take it from you and give you another one that you can choose or you can just get out of the navy and no harm no foul and and I started crying and um, I said no this is the job that I want I need it so that I can get to my brother and um, I just said a little prayer in my head again said god please make it so that i can have this job because i still thought that i was so stupid that i couldn't really do anything um like i didn't think that i could be a corpsman because um, i thought that that would be too hard and i i i still thought that i couldn't really learn anything so this job was something that i could do that didn't take a lot of intelligence sorry our piece but it really doesn't um it's a, it's a cool job, but it doesn't take like, you know, corpsmen have to study a lot of hard things. So I didn't want to be a corpsman. Um, and a lot of my choices have been made by thinking that I couldn't do something. So that RP job was something I chose because um, I still thought that I was so stupid that I couldn't do anything really hard. Um, so um they said we'll just go back and we'll we'll let you know our decision in the morning and i guess the head chaplain whatever i told him uh, made a difference because they said we're gonna let you be an rp even though it's close to females and then um i went to my a school um in meridian mississippi went through all the learning how to be an rp and then um they called me to the head chaplain. I actually went to chapel and met some guy, everyone was in civvy, so I didn't know who, who he was, and talked to him about my brother and my brother's in Iraq and, and I'm trying to um, get stationed with the Marines. I just told him what my goals were. And then he ended. it ended up that he was um, somebody super important, like a CO or something. And so the next week they called me back to uh, the had chaplain and, and told me your rate is close to females. We don't know how you got here, but we're not going to let you um, continue in this rate. And 
And I cried again and I said, you've got to let me be an RP. I'm so close to getting to my brother. Like the next step is going greenside and then it can be stationed with the Marine Corps. And then that CO that I had talked to at the, the Sunday before at the little chapel service, um, he got wind of what was happening and he said, no, you're going to let her be an RP. <laughs> so I, I skated through again. Um, and then I signed up to go greenside and went to um, field med training school, or field med service school at Camp Lejeune, um, where the Navy learns. We go through like a mini Marine Corps boot camp and we learn how the Marine Corps culture, we get their uniforms, we learn how to be stationed with the Marines. Um, and so that was how I got there. And um, that experience was not nearly as pleasant from what I what I have learned. You didn't like the food nearly as much. You didn't like this, the sleeping quarters nearly as much. So did you ever make it to your brother? Yeah. Um, so I got through um, field med service school and I had a lot of fun. The comforts were gone. The Navy has a lot of um, comforts that the Marine Corps does not have. And so I had to get used to, you know, the food wasn't as good and um, the barracks were not as good. Um, and, but I had a lot more fun with the Marines. So um, just, I left the culture a lot better than I did on the blue side in the Navy. Um, and so the, just being outside and the hiking, um, the humps that we had to do and the obstacle courses and um, learning how to shoot a rifle, like, all of that stuff was so much fun. Like I would have given up the food and the, the good barracks for that a hundred times over. I loved it. So I. I There's a oh, question here. During this time in the military, did the monster still try to contact you? <laughs> yes. So um, that came later. Um, so by now I had a cell phone. It was the little flip, the pink razor. <laughs> my first phone um and so he did but that was a little later in the story um but I got through field med service school and um I just um remember the staff sergeants who uh, were teaching us all about the Marine Corps giving us our tests and everything um they found out that my brother was in Iraq and they they told me when I graduated why didn't you tell us that you had this brother that this was why you're you're here? And I was still just kept everything to myself really. Um, so I didn't know why I didn't tell them, but I said, well, now that I've graduated here, I need to get to him. And so I told them I want to be stationed at Camp Pendleton and I got Camp Pendleton. And so um, my brother was still deployed to Iraq and this whole time, he was writing me letters, encouraging me. Like when I was in boot camp, I would get letters from him in the middle of Iraq saying, I believe in you and I know this is hard, but you can do it. And it was like, he's actually in war and he's telling me, like, encouraging me in boot camp, <laughs> Navy boot camp. He still made fun of me too, but he was so encouraging to me through the whole time. So we were we were writing letters all this time together. Um, and then I got to Camp Pendleton, my first duty station, and um, I was with the Marines. I worked with, I worked in the little, um, the White Chapel on Mainside Camp, Camp Pendleton, and um, I can't remember how long I was there before my brother got back, but I was 
there at Camp Horno when he returned from his first deployment. And I just remember screaming his name and hugging him. And that was worth all of it to be there for that moment. That was one of the best moments of my life. If um, going back to the pizza restaurant, the, the people there could hardly recognize you. I can only imagine the transition and shifts that your brother must have instantly been able to recognize and being able to see you again. That must have been such a proud moment. Yeah, we were proud of each other. Uh, that's amazing. All my friends who have served said that they hated boot camp. I know her Lexi's take on it is quite a bit different. Now, Lexi, we're going to get into a, a major shift in your story because you were in the you were in the Navy from 04 to 06. So what happened and why did you end up leaving the military in 06? Um, so that goes back to that question. The person just asked, um, did the, the monster try and reach you again? So I, I was doing really well. Um, I loved my job. I loved um, the other RPs that I was um, stationed with. I had a really encouraging team and I was just thriving. Like I loved, um, I PT'd and I ended up loving exercise. I loved the PT. I loved going on the company hikes with the Marines. Um, I went to the range with the Marines. Um, I did McMap, the Marine Corps martial arts with the Marines. Like my chief really made sure that the Marines knew that we were there um, and that we could do everything that they could do. And so that was a really important aspect of being stationed with them um, was that they knew, oh, this is my RP and I can depend on them if I need something. Um, <clears throat> and so um, my brother wouldn't allow me to visit him at Camp Horno. So he would come see me on my side of the base. You didn't want me around the other infantry. <laughs> so, um, but, so we were, we would visit each other on the weekends or he would come and see me and we would you know, go bowling on main side or go to the movies or whatever. Um, but he was already, he was getting ready to deploy again um, for his second tour to Iraq. And um, I was just kind of, um, doing really well. And then one day I got a call um, and the monster's voice was on the other side of that phone call. And he said, I can't remember what he said, but I remember the feeling inside when I heard the voice, um, all of that trauma that I had been pushing down and I was drinking a lot still. So I, I wasn't um, smoking pot anymore. I couldn't in the military, um, but I was drinking with the Marines um, that's pretty, pretty common aspect of uh, military stories is that we just drink on the weekends and we party and we had fun. And I was just having a great time being um, a young girl in my 20s. And um, I started smoking again as soon as I got out of boot camp. So I was still smoking Marbreds and um, drinking a lot, um, but I was doing well. And that had been probably the, the best that I'd ever been doing. I don't remember feeling depressed at that time or um, anything. And I had just kind of decided to forget the past and just move forward. Um, but when I heard his voice, something broke inside of me. Um, and he said that I ruined his life by leaving and that um, <clears throat> he was so lonely that he wanted me to come back right now, like <laughs> just leave, leave the military and get back here. And so that voice broke broke me 
And so I, I didn't know what to do um, with those emotions. Um, and I didn't know that I should go talk to my command and tell them like, hey, I have this history of abuse, I need help. Um, so I found um, the SEPS platoon was right across from my barracks and they were uh, always smoking pot. And so I knew what could make me feel better. And so I started smoking again. Um, <clears throat> and this went on for some time before I got caught. So it was helping me to be able to live my day-to-day -day life and still do my job. And um, I just got back into that mentality of, of partying and forcing all my negative emotions to go away. Um, and so the marijuana really helped me through that moment of all this PTSD is coming back. So, or it's, it's just starting. So um, there was a period, probably two years had gone by now um, that it before since I left him, um, all of that period I was just numb. So all of that was just like stone casing inside my heart, and I didn't feel any of the symptoms from post-traumatic stress. Um, even though I, I definitely had it, it was all just um, locked away, and that was for survival, and it was necessary. But when I heard his voice, it all cracked open, and the only thing I knew to do was to start smoking. And so um, I spent a lot of time partying and pushing all those feelings down. And definitely, I think that my command could see a shift in me, um, but they didn't really know what was going on. My behavior changed. I started being late for PT. Um, I started all of these things that um, probably back in 2005, we weren't trained to look for yet in the military. So. I can't say we weren't trained, but definitely nobody really knew um, those those symptoms. Nobody looked at me and said, she was a really good sailor and now suddenly things are going sideways. What What's going on? Um, <clears throat> and so I ended up getting caught smoking weed in the SEPS barracks. Um, about five of us got caught and the other Marines, they were, the Marines, they were on their way out anyways, so it didn't really matter. Um, but I <clears throat> got caught, got arrested by the MPs, got my barracks room searched um, in front of the whole barracks. Um, and then I finally, when my, my chief came out, I finally told them, like, hey, I, I had been abused really badly before I joined the Navy, and, and this guy called me. And um, <clears throat> they actually sent me to a therapist. She was uh, a really bad experience for a first um, therapist. She was maybe 20 years old, didn't have any life experience and tried to tell me to draw a picture of the animal I thought that I was and color it in and this was gonna make me feel better. So I quit therapy the same day. Um, and I, was, I felt insulted uh, at that therapy session. And I decided therapy is not, um, I'm too broken, nobody can ever help me. Instead of thinking, maybe I just need to see another therapist, I thought, nobody can help you, you're too, um, you're too wrong, there's nothing right with you. Um, so I gave up instantly, <clears throat> the thought of therapy. And I just, um, my, 
my chaplain, my um, everyone in my command, they all wrote me letters of recommendation saying she's a good sailor. Um, she just needs a second chance, like keep her in. And I got um, NJP'd through uh, the Marine side of the command and they were all really understanding. The Marines were there for me. They encouraged me and supported me. And um, I got busted down <clears throat> from E3 to E1 and I got put on um, barracks restriction and extra duty, all that stuff. And um, I was working towards doing good again. Like I even stopped drinking for a while because that kind of <clears throat> scared me that I can get in this much trouble by doing that, using the, the tools I had before as a civilian, it, it doesn't work here. <clears throat> so um, I was doing really well. I worked my way back up to E3 and I was studying to take my um, third class petty officer test. Um, and then um, I got an, a NAM for running Toys for Tots um, for the, the base. And then that was on a Friday. And then on the Monday, after um, a lot of time had passed and I thought that, you know, I'm, I'm back on track, things are gonna go well. <clears throat> on Monday, um, my chief and uh, my other, the RP1s that I had um, called me for a meeting and they said, um, we just heard back from Washington and the, the Navy command there got your package and they decided to kick you out. So they're not giving you a second chance. And a lot of time had already passed. It took them a long time to get my package and review it. And um, I thought that I was already in the clear, <clears throat> but they said, um, we're kicking you out. And so I spiraled, um, you know, there's still a little time um, before you get out that I had to um, kind of figure out what I was gonna do as a civilian. And um, so I started partying again um, and I ended up going to a party from a bar uh, with a female Marine that I didn't know her. Um, but she was a female, so I just kind of trusted her intuitively. Well, that's probably not a good word, because intuition is usually right. I trusted her naively, um, and she brought me to a party where um, I was raped by, I want to say, about 12 to 14 Marines. So she, they used her to bring females to their party so that they could gang rape them. Um, and so uh, on top of all this trauma that I was facing getting kicked out of the Navy, now I had a military sexual trauma on top of all that. Um, and so I went back to being numb. I went back to um, just being drunk all the time. And I, I didn't tell anyone about the rape. I, I told my best friend and she, um, was a Marine. She was always there for me. And <clears throat> she ended up telling someone in our command, I think uh, the first sergeant in the, for the barracks. And he told me that I needed to report it. And so I did report um, the rape and they sent me two um, really young Marines, MPs, to take uh, my story. And the Marines were so immature, they couldn't hear a story like that. So they just laughed at me. 
and nothing came of the report. Um, and so even now, um, my claim has been denied three times by the VA and they tell me that there's no report of me ever being raped. And so, but I made a report. So I hear a lot of stories that say, um, oh, there's no record because a lot of people don't come forward. Um, but I did come forward, I was sort of forced to, and then no report was made. Um, and so um, at this time, um, I finished getting out and I was homeless. I had nowhere to go. Um, and I was out of my mind with um, post-traumatic stress symptoms. And um, I just went back to using drugs and drinking and smoking pot every day. And I ended up um, traveling. So I was um, homeless for the next six months. <clears throat> Somebody here, I'm not sure who says this. I'm so sorry this happened. I don't have many men friends because most are most are effing creeps. Yeah, yeah, they definitely can be. And um, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I know it's not easy to be vulnerable and, and share things like that. And it's just a, a small piece of your incredibly inspiring story. And I know that being as deep into this as we are right now, almost an hour into this, it is it is a time in your past that seems like it's incredibly dark and one that I would imagine would be nearly impossible to be able to see some light in. But I promise you guys, I want to thank everybody who's continuing to listen because this story um, has an incredible ending. So talk to us a little bit about the the time that you were homeless after serving in, in the military and being asked to um, to leave after having something so traumatic happen to you. Um, and I can definitely understand and being a female, there's this unspoken level of trust that we have with other females who take us somewhere like that. And so to be betrayed by, by another female in that way, I would imagine that that also created uh, an entirely different element when it comes to your level of trust or lack thereof. So talk to us a little bit about the time when you were homeless. Um, and I did ask that female Marine, um, she watched the whole thing. And I asked her after it was over, how could you let this happen to me? And she said, you get used to it. <laughs> so shame on her wherever she is. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so um, I was homeless in Oceanside, um, California. And basically, I just um, kind of hung out on the beach and then I would um, kind of get hotels for the night if I could scrounge up enough money. And I really had no direction um, except to keep my feelings <clears throat> down and to stay high and to stay drunk. And um, one of my friends from the barracks, um, he told me, uh, Cassidy, I can see that you're um, kind of in a spiral here and I want to help you start over. So just pick a place on the map and I will buy you a ticket there. And so I picked Durango, Colorado. I don't know why. I just found it and thought it sounded cool. And so he bought me, it was a, a bus ticket and a train ticket to get there. And so I started traveling um, to Durango and my plan um, so I was very inspired by Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and the Beatniks um, during my young reading career. And so um, if you've ever read On the Road, 
uh, you just do drugs and travel. And that was like so cool in my brain. Um, so I, I said, I'm going to be like Kerouac and I'm just going to travel and write stories and write poetry and write about the people I meet. And that's what I did. Um, and I thought there is a uh, Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa Institute, the Buddhist university. And I was probably more Buddhist than anything else at this time. So um, I decided I'm going to get to Naropa in Colorado and I'm going to present them with all these poems that I wrote while I've been tripping and high and meeting people as I'm homeless. And they're going to let me into the school of, of poetry because Jack Kerouac is my one of my idols and, and this just is gonna fall into place for me. <laughs> so that was my plan, um, travel across the country and write poetry and then get into this Buddhist school and um, kind of find my um, nirvana. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, and I was writing poetry this, this whole time and just meeting a lot of interesting people. And I got to Durango um, and I met um, a man named James at the, um, the soup kitchen there. Um, and he was this um, tall, skinny white guy with um, John Lennon spectacles and long blonde dreadlocks and he had a little white pitbull puppy named Sasha and um I trusted his dog so like his dog was so kind and um just loved him so much that I instantly trusted him and so he told me we have a camp in the woods here and you can come and stay with us I have an extra tent you can use and um so he was one of the angels in my life that was sent to help me and I, I moved into the woods with him and his camp. And there was two other people there um, and me and him and his dog. And I camped in the woods and he taught me basically how to survive, um, how to cook on a little stovetop and um, how to set up my tent and how to stay warm at night. And um, so we had a pretty good gig there. And there was a lot, a lot of people living in the woods in different camps. and. Um, the police would raid us and we'd have to move every once in a while and um, it was just kind of an exciting way to live and um, the soup kitchen was across the Colorado River so I would um, wake up in the morning and go have breakfast and if you helped them clean or serve food then you could have a shower and a razor and brush your teeth and so I did that um, and then Durango is a real little town um, and I would walk the main street and just go into little shops and ask them, hey, can I clean your um, business for 60 bucks? And I had about five or six places that I would clean every week to make money um, so that I could buy alcohol or whatever I needed to get through that week. Um, and then, yeah, I just lived that way. And I didn't really plan for a future. I didn't um, think that I was gonna have a very long future. So I remember thinking that um, my tent was kind of in the shape of a coffin and I would lay with my head outside of its little zipper door staring at the stars that night um, in the forest and thinking, this is my grave, I'm gonna die here. Um, or this is my coffin, I'm gonna die here. And I was okay with that. I didn't really wanna live very much longer. Uh, Brian here says, yes, God does send people 
through good people. Yeah, definitely. And um, Lexi has some some incre- incredibly inspiring, I, I would even call them angels that show up in, in the midst of her story in, in the most unexpected ways. So Lexi, you're at this point in a tent looking up at the stars, thinking that this is going to be your coffin, you're going to die. And from the story of yours that I, I do know, I know that the winter time comes and that acts as a catalyst for you to change your situation. So what happens? Um, so winter was coming and I was just basically partying all the time. So James, my um, the angel, he never hit on me, never tried to make um, our relationship romantic at all. And I really appreciated that. Um, he was just a kind person and he would, he, he was very anti, um, social. He didn't want to be part of society. He lived, um, in the woods on purpose and, um, he didn't want to really be a part of the, the world as we know it, I guess. So he would kind of, um, I would be at the bars at night and then I would stumble out drunk at closing time with some guy that I was ready to go home with and he would be like no it's time to go back to the tent now and he I would be like no this is what I want to do and just kind of like this rebellious teenager um and he would just take me back to the tent and make sure that I was safe and nobody had ever done that kind of thing for me before um I didn't appreciate it at the time but I really do now um and I had several boyfriends that um I hung out with while I was there um, and like I would go, you know, have a, a place to sleep at night and just have, I think I had three or four boyfriends at that time. Um, but one of them, he had my brother's number in California and uh, my brother had been back from his second deployment um, when I was getting kicked out of the military. So I got to be there for him um, when he got back from his second deployment and then I was transitioning out and he um, had a lot of horrible things happen to him, um, which I, I don't want to share his story, but um, he was going through a lot too um, with post-traumatic stress and what he had seen in Iraq. And I couldn't be there for him in the way that I wish that I was now. Um, because of all the stuff that I was going through. Um, but I still stayed connected to him and called and told him that I was safe all the time. And um, so I gave him this, one of my boyfriend's numbers and I said, this guy knows where to reach me. He knows where my tent is. If you ever need me, just call his number and he'll come find me. <clears throat> and so that um, boyfriend came and said, hey, I got a message that your brother's in the hospital and he might be dying. And um, that was all that he knew about it. And I couldn't, I tried to call the number that left the message, but they, they weren't answering. And so I didn't know what was going on with me. My, my brother, I just knew that he was in the hospital and he was dying. And so um, I, that night was Halloween night and I went on a, a drunken bender. Um, I remember having a beer with a Hunter Thompson, guy dressed like Hunter Thompson, and um, just going basically on a bar crawl. And I was so drunk and um, I got in a fight with some girl at a Denny's. So I woke up with a black eye and um, 
I told the Denny's manager that I had no idea why she would hit me, but I, I'm pretty sure I instigated that fight. Um, so she got arrested and I sat down at a table with this stranger um, and I told him, I'm getting us free pancakes because the manager is sorry that somebody punched me in his restaurant. So just pretend you know me. And so <laughs> he did. So we got free breakfast. And then um, I said, I have nowhere to go. So I need you to take me home with you tonight. I, I don't remember saying that, but he told me later that that's what I said. Um, and so he took me home with him. And I woke up in a little cabin in the middle of, I don't know where, there was no electricity and no water. And this man was sleeping on the couch and I woke him up and asked, um, did you kidnap me? And I was kind of terrified that I was gonna be murdered. And he said, no, you asked me to bring you here and you, you said you have nowhere to go. It's like, this is my grandma's cabin or something. And that's why there's no like electricity or anything. I don't know if we broke in and stayed in some cabin. I, I still don't know. <laughs> He said he owned it. <laughs> so I told him, well, can you bring me back to town now? And so he did. And um, he drove me back to the soup kitchen. And they were having, um, I think the next day was a Sunday. Uh, they were having a little church service at that soup kitchen with the for the homeless people there, which was me. And so um, I sat in their little metal folding chairs because I had nowhere else to go. And I was so hungover. And I was so sad that I couldn't get back to California to my brother. Um, and I started crying um, and I wore a hijab to the church service because I thought, well, if they think I'm Muslim, then I'll see if they're really judgmental. And so I had a really um, bad stigma against Christians that they're judgmental and I don't want to trust them. And so I, I thought, well, I'll dress as if I'm Muslim and see if they're judgy over people. And so they let me in. They didn't care um, that I was pretending to be Muslim. <laughs> I don't know why I had a hijab with me, but <laughs> I don't remember. So um, I started crying and I ended up taking the, the hijab off and said, okay, well, they're not judging me. So I guess I will trust them and listen to what they have to say. Um, and I don't remember what the pastor was talking about, but I ran into the bathroom crying and his wife came in mm -hmm. and said, um, what's wrong, honey? And, and I told her, my brother's dying. He's in the hospital. I don't know what's wrong, but he has a severe head injury and um, I can't get back to him. And so she bought me a ticket back to California in that minute and never checked my story, didn't ask me if I was telling the truth, didn't um, look at me as if I was drug seeking, um, which a lot of people did. Um, and even if I was seeking drugs, it was still the truth that I couldn't get back to California. Um, so that shifted something in me that I could trust people and there were people that wanted to help. Um, and I, I started my journey back to California, um, the next day, um, to get to my brother and I was severely ill at this point. Like I had this racking cough and really severe pain in my ribs. Um, and I didn't really know what was wrong, um, but I, during, um, I was waiting for a bus to take me back to California. Um, so I had to catch a couple of buses and then a train. And um, I still have that Amtrak ticket um, that took me back. 
Um, but I was waiting in a bar and I, I was drinking a beer waiting for my bus time to come. Um, and uh, the next thing that I know, I was passed out in a semi-truck um, coming in and out of consciousness. And there was this great big um, trucker driving me with a huge beard and he had the big belly and like the typical what you think a trucker should look like. Um, I just saw snaps of this person driving me somewhere and I was um, going in and out of consciousness. When I woke up, I was in the emergency room with all these tubes and all this stuff in me. Um, and the doctor said, um, you have a severe infection. Um, I think it was in my liver and it was spreading to my other organs. Um, and if you hadn't got here right at this minute, you would be dead. Um, and she said, I want to keep you for observation and we've given you antibiotics and um, you're, you should recover, but I just want to make sure. And I told her, I have a bus to catch. I got to go. So call me a cab. Um, and she was like, ma'am, I suggest that you don't leave this hospital bed. Like you almost just died. And I told her, I got to get to my brother. Just call me a cab. So I ripped off all the things that I had in the hospital bed, um, attaching me to it. Um, and I told her, and I also don't have money for a cab, so I'm going to need you to pay for that. <laughs> she said, okay, we'll, we'll pay for your cab. Um, and so they called the cab and I got to my bus and they were just um, loading the bus to, to leave. And I uh, ran out of the cab and he told me, hey, you still owe me the cab fare. I don't remember how much it was, but I told him the hospital said they were going to cover that. And he said, well, they didn't. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I got a bus to catch. So I just ran and he let me go. <laughs> and um, so I, I made it to the bus and then I made it to the train in Oceanside and I made it to the hospital to my brother's side and he was okay, he lived. Um, and then he began his, um, to get out medically from the Marine Corps. Um, and then my mom had come from Chicago to see him as well. And um, the people that she was staying with uh, asked me, um, well, what are you gonna do now, young lady? Because uh, my brother was planning to go to Chicago um, with his new wife and they were going to start his civilian life there. And I said, I'm gonna go back to the street. And um, they said, well, we don't really think that's a place for um, a young girl to be, it's not safe. And um, we know a place that you can go. And so I said, well, they, they told me you can either go to this rehab and it's free. They take homeless people in and they help you get back on your feet or we'll get you a ticket to Chicago to go with your mom. Um, and I didn't really ever want to depend on someone else and live with um, my parents again. Um, it was just something that I, that wasn't an option for me. So I told him, okay, I'll give rehab a try. Uh, and then he took me there the next day and um, yeah, had a place to live again. <laughs> what year was that when you went into rehab? Um, so I got out of the Navy in 2006 and then it was July, 2006. So this whole story took place um, until October. So it would have been that Halloween of that year. And then um, 
probably 2007. I don't know. My dates are not right in my head. <laughs> but That's okay. So what happened with... Um, so I got clean and sober and started um, my associate's degree. Um, I started back to school and um, I lived in a house with 10 other women um, who are also getting clean and sober and had been homeless. <laughs> and um, we were just kind of learning how to be uh, not on drugs and alcohol and how to kind of live in society again. And um, I had quit smoking again because um, they didn't allow you to smoke in the rehab. And then, um, so I just started eating and um, I got really overweight. So in that year, my first year of rehab, um, I had gone from maybe 110 pounds to 175 pounds. And so um, I didn't have anything to fill that place that I was using drugs to fill. So I just started eating um, and I think I spent a year that way and then I decided I'm not happy like this and the military taught me how to exercise like why am I not doing that so I just started running every day and then I lost um, I got back down to 125 um, just from running and um, finished my associate's degree um, I graduated at the top of my class and then um, I decided to go for my bachelor's degree. So I was in San Diego at this time and um, I applied for Biola uh, in Los Angeles and I got it. And um, during my whole time in rehab, I had uh, this, there, it was females and males. And so when you kind of transitioned from the rehab part to the sober living part, they put us in a house with men and women. And one of the men in the home, um, decided he was going to start stalking me and there, there was nothing that I could do about it because um, I lived there and I had nowhere to go and um, you can't really go to the police and say this man is stalking me when he lives there and um, I think that I tried that and they told me well why don't you just leave <laughs> so I had this really scary stalking situation um, that I thought he was going to kill me um, for about a year um, and I couldn't really do anything about it. Um, he would follow me to my um, college classes. He would, uh, if I didn't follow my schedule, he would like yell and ask where I was. And I think I went to, it was a Christian rehab. So I went to the pastor and told him what was happening and he told me to get over myself um, and, that, and that it wasn't happening. Um, and so kind of this, pattern was reiterated that my feelings are not valid that I can't go to anybody for help and then I just need to deal with it and so I just sucked it up and lived with this person stalking me um, for this whole year and then I applied to Los Angeles so that I could I thought I could just move away and get away from him um, and he he was really scary he would do things like corner me in the home when nobody was there and tell me he was going to cut off all my hair and steal my dog and um, yeah, I had a, a dog at this time, and um, he was just a really horrible person. Um, and so I got accepted to Biola, and I moved to Los Angeles and started school there. Um, but at this time, all of my 
post-traumatic stress really came tumbling down on me. So um, I had had enough distractions and had enough people around me all the time that I, di I, I didn't have to deal with it. Um, but suddenly my depression came back crushingly and I went from a straight A student to failing all my classes. Um, and I, I worked as a janitor at night at the school. Um, so I worked overnight and then I went to school in the day. Um, and I had, I had done that for my associates too, um, worked at night, went to school in the day. And um, so I was a janitor at the school and then I was failing my classes. And then um, somebody, some lady um, came and told me, I have severe depression and I've been like, um, watching you and I think that you have depression and you need to go see someone. And I told her, you don't know what you're talking about. But uh, my suicidal thoughts were coming back um, in waves and I couldn't, um, I didn't want to live anymore. Um, and I was feeling like a failure because I was failing all my classes. Um, and so I went to um, the dorm mother person and I told her, she was just a young girl that's never been through anything. So when I told her what I was going through, she didn't know what to do. Um, and I told her, I think I'm going to kill myself. I don't want to be here anymore. Um, and I don't know what to do. So she went to um, whoever's in charge of the dorm people and told them that I had threatened to commit suicide. And they told me, we're going to kick you out of school if you don't go see a therapist and I felt um, betrayed and offended by this girl and that um, I had trusted her and she betrayed me <laughs> and um, but I'm glad that she did that um, they forced me to go to this um, psychiatrist and he happened to be um, a retired um, army psychiatrist um, so he understood military people and I hadn't um, met any other veterans uh, in after I got out and I didn't realize how important the veteran community is to like surround yourself with other people who know what you're going through. And, and I was just alone. Um, so he explained to me that I may need medicine. And I said, no, I, I, I was very, very against mental health um, meds. There was a stigma like, oh, she's a girl on meds. I wouldn't want to date her or like, that's still kind of a joke. <laughs> that I hear happening. Um, and I didn't want to talk to anyone about what I was going through because you don't do that. You just um, be strong and get over it. Um, and he kind of really walked me through uh, how the meds work with your brain to help your brain start um, creating serotonin again and that it's just a necessary boost um, and that it can help me not to want to kill myself anymore. So the way that he explained it made sense to me. Um, and I decided to go on um, antidepressants and um, they didn't work right away. So I, I ended up um, trying to commit suicide. And um, a little later on, I had moved out of the dorm because I couldn't afford to live there. And so I got um, an apartment outside of the school and I was still um, working as a janitor and just, um, I actually dropped out of school because um, my de of my depression, um, but I was still a janitor at the school. So um, 
I was feeling like a failure. I couldn't um, study any longer. Um, I had dropped out of the school that I moved to Los Angeles to go to. And uh, I was so severely depressed that I didn't want to live anymore. And um, I hadn't gone to the VA yet or tried to use um, any services. Um, but one thing that I did do during this time um, when I got out of the Navy is that um, I put a package together. I had a other than honorable discharge um, and I put a package together to get my discharge upgraded. And so that took about seven or eight years um, to really get the package correct and to send it um, to be reviewed. Um, but since I did get clean and sober and I had my associate's degree and I was working towards my bachelor's and um, I was able to tell them like I had post-traumatic stress and that's a lot of the reasons why I did the things that I did. They upgraded my discharge to an honorable. Um, and so that really helped me um, in getting help later from the VA because now I could use VA services. And um, But I I ended up getting to the point that I, I did try to kill myself um, and I had, uh, I was pouring tears and I was in this dark tunnel. I couldn't see anything except for suicide. Um, and so I was in my living room crying and I had um, this knife to my wrist and I was just about to slice my wrist open and my cat, um, this cat named Neil that I found in an alley, he was, <laughs> a homeless feral cat I brought him home with me and he um pushed the knife away from my wrist with his head and then he licked my face with his cat tongue he licked my tear and then it snapped me out of it and the tunnel opened up and I thought I need help um I'm gonna die right now I I don't want to I can't I cannot live through this night without help and so my cat as the one who um, stopped me from killing myself in that moment. And I just drove myself to the hospital and told them I'm gonna kill myself if I don't get help. Um, and so I was hospitalized for the first time um, that night uh, and they got me on meds that got me stabilized. And um, I think I was there for two weeks. Um, and then I really got a therapist that helped me and was doing group therapy and, um, that was my beginning of getting well from post-traumatic stress. Another one of those angels in your story. This time it just so happens to be in feline form. <laughs> I think it's absolutely incredible. And I know we have a link between you starting your journey in getting well to how jujitsu started to become an incredibly powerful thing in your life. So can you link those two together? And really quick, there's a comment here. My dog did the same thing to me a little over two years ago. From then, I never questioned the loyalty and power of animals. Absolutely. Yes, I believe that. Um, so um, I'll skip forward to I uh, did start using the VA um, and told them about my military sexual trauma and about my abuse and I got uh, a good therapist and um, a peer support um, and so my peer support at the VA actually helped me more than any other thing because she was a veteran that had gone through a lot of the things that I was going through 
um, and was just there to support me. So she encouraged me to become a peer support specialist. Um, and so I, I went to school to, to do that. And then um, I ended up getting, um, um, I was homeless again for a brief period in the middle of that time. Um, because of my depression, I couldn't go to work anymore. Um, and so when I got out of the hospital, um, I tried to go back to work and I, I, I was still depressed. So the hospital didn't solve everything. It just kind of got me over the hump of that suicide attempt. Um, and I had um, eight, $800 um, in my bank account and I could either pay my rent or move into my car. And I decided to just keep my money and move into my car. So me, my two cats and I, um, I just left the apartment. I left all the furniture there and everything and told the landlord I'm leaving. Um, and we moved into my car. And so um, I was homeless in Los Angeles and um, ended up having another angel come and, and save the day for me. Um, and then I ended up becoming a peer support specialist um, and I got a job at the VA in Redding, California. And so I packed up my animals. Um, at this time I had two dogs, two cats and a dog. Um, and then we moved to Redding, California, which was way, way north from um, SoCal where I was living at the time. And so um, I became a peer support specialist at the VA and um, I was there for a year. Um, and I ended up, uh, I was in a really good place mentally, um, but the way that the uh, mental health staff treated veterans at the VA that I worked at, um, and it's not all VAs, but the one that I was at was horrendous. Um, and um, the, the, some of the therapists and the psychiatrists there that I was working with told me that I don't have a degree and I'm not helping veterans and I don't belong there. I don't belong on their team. Um, and um, I ended up losing one of the Marines that I was trying to help to suicide. And I was crying in the conference room, in the break room. And the psychiatrist came and said, well, what are you crying over? You, you just get over it. Like you can't care about all these people. <laughs> Um, and so I ended up spiraling again um, and uh, trying to kill myself again um, because I couldn't handle what I was seeing. And um, a lot of the stories were bringing up all of my trauma. Um, and so I um, lost it at work one day and I, I told them um, I'm going to kill myself. I can't. Um, I can't live anymore. And, and I found out later that it was um, the meds that they had me on um, caused suicidal ideations. And so I was living with um, these suicide voices in my head all the time telling me, um, you just need to kill yourself. You just need to kill yourself. And I couldn't deal with it anymore. So I decided I was going to kill myself. But by now I knew um, enough about my mental health that I, I knew to ask for help. And that same psychiatrist um, was put on suicide watch for me while the ambulance came. Um, they were going to take me to the VA hospital in Sacramento. Um, and he mocked me and said that um, he saw the cuts on my arms. And if I really wanted to commit suicide, I wasn't doing a very good job at it. And why was I, um, if I wanted attention so badly, there was other ways to get it. 
and um, I was wasting his time. He had other work to do, and he has to be on babysitter watch for me. And so I was battling committing suicide in my head, and this man was mocking me that was put there to help me. Um, and um, I remember he said, oh, should I take the scissors away from your desk or are you gonna try and stab yourself? Just horrible things he was saying to me. And that was, in my brain was telling me, he's right, he's right, just kill yourself. You don't belong here. You're wasting everyone's time. Um, but I knew that the ambulance was on the way and if I could just hold on a little longer, I could live. And I knew that um, I didn't want other people to feel this way and I had to survive so I could help other people. And so I ended up going to the hospital again, this time the VA hospital. Um, and they took me off those meds that were causing this, these suicide thoughts, um, kind of like in an OCD loop. Um, and I got stable again. And when I went back, I quit the VA job because I couldn't be there anymore. Um, I didn't want to be. And I couldn't stand how the vets were being treated. I couldn't stand how this man um, felt so evil. Um, and so I quit and I was on unemployment and um, a lot of other things happened, but um, I ended up, I was in Redding, California for six years um, and I had no way of dealing with my symptoms. Um, so I, I started smoking pot again. And I don't think that in my personal opinion, marijuana is not a, a bad tool to use. Um, it's very helpful. Um, but for myself and my um, obsessive, uh, I have uh, OCD, so I get obsessed with the thought that you need to be high, you need to be high, you need to be high. And so when I'm doing something like smoking pot, it becomes more of a, a hindrance for me. Um, and so that's what I was doing, um, is, was just staying high all the time. And um, I had uh, actually moved, my brother was um, homeless in South Carolina and dealing with his own trauma from Iraq. Um, and so I moved him to uh, Reading to be with me. And I told him, hey, I've, I've been helping uh, other veterans at the VA. I can I can help you too. I think um, if you move here, we'll, we'll get your, your post-traumatic stress under control. And so my brother moved in with me um, and we had a long journey together um, to help him through his post-traumatic stress. Um, and it was a really painful, some really painful years um, but he was my roommate and we helped each other. Um, and he ended up, uh, he got sober and stopped drinking and um, got help um, through the VA as well. And it took, it took a long time and it was a long journey, but all the stuff that I went through, I think prepared me to help him. Um, and so um, I decided to quit smoking cigarettes. That was kind of my last addiction that I had. Um, and so I just Googled a gym that costs $125 a month because that's how much I was spending on cigarettes. And I thought if I uh, am giving away my cigarette money, I can't afford them and I'll have to quit. Um, so the gym that came up was CrossFit Reading. And um, I started CrossFit and quit smoking. And um, then my, my depression was under control, but my anxiety was out of control. So I remember that the first time I did a deadlift, um, I burst into tears and the coach was just kind of like taken aback. Like he didn't know, like, why is she crying? This is a basic, 
movement. Um, but it was my anxiety and the cigarettes had been controlling, keeping the anxiety under control. When I didn't have those, um, it was madness. So um, the gym owner from CrossFit Reading uh, is in the Air Force. Um, and he was basically the first one of the first leaders of my life that really like looked at me and believed in me. And he helped me to learn CrossFit and to fall in love with exercise um, and to use exercise uh, to keep my anxiety at bay. Um, and um, he um, encouraged me to start school again. So I started um, my bachelor's program um, once more and I finished and graduated again at the top of my class. Um, and um, I did my, so how that ties in with jujitsu is that um, I did my whole bachelor's on, um, I got my bachelor's in organizational leadership and um, I did my whole bachelor's on Jocko um, Willink and um, Echelon Front, his company and his podcast. And so every time I had an assignment, um, find a podcast on leadership, I would do all my papers, all my presentations on Jocko. And so you can't really listen to Jocko for long without hearing about jujitsu. Um, and so when I graduated uh, with my bachelor's, um, I, one of the girls in my class um, who had been there with me the whole time, um, I told her Jocko's coming to San Francisco, um, but I can't afford to go see him. And she said, how much are the tickets? And I told her, and she said, I just Venmoed you the money by that ticket. You have to meet him, he's your hero. <laughs> so she's like, this is my graduation present to you. And so that girl changed my life forever because um, that kind of changed the trajectory that I was on. Um, and so I went to see Jocko two years ago, January 28th, 2020. It's almost the anniversary that <laughs> I met Jocko. Um, and so I went to his book signing in San Francisco and um, I heard him speak and it was so powerful. And I got my uh, field guide for leadership signed by him. Like he waited um, and signed all of our books and talked to each of us and took a picture with us and hugged us all. And, and, and when I got up to meet him, um, I told him, Jocko, I did my whole bachelor's degree on you. And, and he laughed and um, he told me the one thing that I can do to change my life uh, in all aspects for the positive was to start training jujitsu. And so um, the very next day I started jujitsu and it's been two years and I'm addicted. And I've, he was right. It changed my life forever. It was awesome. That's amazing. And it, it, it's so inspiring. It makes me super happy to know that yet again, there was another angel showed up into your life and allowed you to, <laughs> as a segue, really for you to be able to take that next step on somebody that you admire so much. And then um, most people don't take action on those types of things, but you know, somebody that you admire and respect told you that this is what you should do. And the very next day you, you decided to do that. And that's one of the million things that I absolutely love about you. And um, now you're actually putting together a book. And to everybody who is listening to this, you might be able to be an incredibly big part of this. So Leslie, talk to us a little bit about the project that you're working on. Um, yeah, so um, I started jujitsu and then COVID happened. And then um, we all stopped training jujitsu for a little while. Um, 
collectively as a, a community. Um, and then um, I, the gym that I was at in Reading um, was owned by a Marine and um, he was a part of Redefy Foundation. So Redefy um, was started by Professor Alan Chabarro and um, he was a Green Beret um, and is a black belt here in Dallas, Texas. And um, he started Redefy to give scholarships to combat disabled veterans to start training jujitsu um, and to begin their healing process through post-traumatic stress um, by jujitsu, by being in that community of veterans and people that, um, and civilians that care about each other and, and can overcome challenges together. Um, and um, jujitsu is so healing um, for your mental health. Um, and so that's the first time that I heard about We Defy was in California at that gym. Um, and I didn't really give it too many thoughts except that, oh, I wish I could get my brother into this. I'm still trying to get him, get him there. He's not ready. Um, but um, I ended up uh, visiting my sister who lives here in Dallas. And I had been estranged from her through this whole time. And she kind of came back into my life in 2018. And um, I started a relationship with her and started getting to know my nieces over the phone. And I, I ended up visiting my sister in Dallas um, over the whole COVID pandemic. And um, I just asked her, like, meeting my nieces, um, I knew that I didn't want them to grow up without knowing who their aunt was. Um, and so I asked my sister, what do you think about me moving to Dallas? And she said, we would love to have you here. And um, so I went back to California and uh, just started putting in applications for Dallas and for in Dallas, Texas and looking for um, sort of places to live. And um, at this time, um, I had a really good job at the, the district attorney's office in Shasta County in California. Um, and I was kind of really comfortable in my, um, in my life. Um, and I was, becoming successful, like this was a job that I could retire in and just be sort of, just live comfortably and safely. And then I just got obsessed with, you need to go to Dallas. And so I told my job, I'm probably moving to Dallas. I don't have a job yet, but um, I'm gonna put in my two week notice and just believe that this is gonna work out for me. Um, and so uh, I wasn't getting any job offers. And then suddenly I got a call, um, from a job that I didn't even apply to uh, here in Plano, Texas. And they said, um, can you be here um, October 1st? And um, we would really like you to come work for us. So I told them yes, even though I didn't have a place to live and I was still in California. I said, I'll be there. And so I got the job. Um, and then I just um, found someone on roommates.com that said, I have an extra room. You can move in whenever you want. Um, and so I packed up my car and took my animals and drove to Dallas, Texas and moved in with a strange lady and started this job. And um, I Googled um, combat base because, no, I Googled um, jujitsu gyms near me and I saw uh, combat base McKinney was listed. Um, and I had remembered that the Marine professor that I had in California said, oh, there's a place in, um, he was teaching something about combat base. And he said, there's a place in, in Texas that is called combat base. And so I 
I just remembered that sentence that he had told me. And I said, well, I'm going to go visit them because my other professor mentioned them. And I walked in and it was the home base of the Weedify Foundation. And it was Professor Alan Chabarro's gym. <laughs> so I got to Dallas on a Wednesday and I believe that I went to visit them on a Thursday. And I've been at that gym ever since. It's been a little over a year now. Um, and Professor Shabaro um, is the one who began Weedify. And so I um, really love the foundation and love what they're doing to help veterans. And um, I wanted to do something to help them, to raise money uh, for them. So uh, I decided to um, publish a book of OEF, OEF veterans, um, short stories, artwork, and um, poetry. Um, and the book is called Your Call is Very Important to Us. And that is a dig at the VA system and how they put us on hold when we call for help. Um, and this book is a way to give a loudspeaker to my generation of veterans um, to talk about what we went through during the Iraq and Afghanistan um, period of time. Um, and um, so I've been collecting these stories and this artwork um, from different veterans for, um, I want to say about six months now, and I'll be collecting still until April 1st. Um, I, I had a publisher reach out to me um, the same day that I posted about, I want to make this book. He's an Air Force veteran um, and he owns Three Ravens Publishing. Um, he said, I love this idea and I will publish you. And so um, I'm working with him to get the book published and all the proceeds from the book are going to go to Weedify to give veterans jujitsu scholarships. Sorry, my mic wouldn't unmute there. That That is amazing. So currently Lexi is collecting short stories, even if it's artwork that people have done overseas, whatever it is that allows um, you as somebody who has served in the military to have a voice and really a, a place that your your legacy or your story, your history, all all that is you can be placed in and then created into a sort of coffee book table, one that um, also has an incredible message behind it, an incredible you know foundation behind it. So, Lexi, why? How can somebody get a hold of you, or maybe if they're interested in sharing a piece of them, a piece of their story, um, what's the best way to be able to do that? Um, so you can go to my website, it's the yourcallproject.org, um, and there's a place to submit your work um, on that website. Thanks to my mom, she created it for me. <laughs> I don't know anything about computers, so she helped me um, in that portion. Um, I'm taking submissions through my email, so it's alexis.cassidy at gmail, um, and um, you can reach me on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, my Instagram is at Cassidy and my Facebook is Alexis Cassidy. Um, but all the submissions are going through my email. So you just um, email me your submission uh, or a picture of your artwork um, with your name, rank, branch, and a picture of yourself in uniform. Thank you. And one thing I want to add, because I did hear Alexi share it on another episode and even find her herself in this spot. So as you listen to this, if you feel that you do have a story or you might have a contribution that you want to make, and maybe it might seem like you're comparing your, yourself or your story to somebody else who 
who maybe has a story that is more grand than yours, or you feel inferior to what you have to share. Um, Lexi is is very much of the belief that your story is important. So if, if that is you, and if you do have a story to share as a veteran or as somebody who is in, in active service right now, then know that you are not um, you are not omitted from this and that Lexi definitely wants to hear from you. So thank you guys so much. I'll go ahead and I'll drop the website down below as soon as I get off of here and as well as Lexi's email. And you again, Lexi, have an incredible story. I am so proud to know somebody like you and somebody who is so willing to be able to open up and be vulnerable in sharing something that I know a lot of people can relate with. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Have a good day, everyone.